I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Just before you listen to today's episode, this is a quick message to remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help support History Hack, which is run entirely by volunteers using our Patreon account. There are links on all of our episodes. Or if a subscription is not your thing, you can also now drop us a line on Kofi, which is just the equivalent of buying us a drink. So if you hear an episode, you like it and you want to chip in just once, then you can do that too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another installation of History Hack. We have oh, an author royalty, Hollywood, practically in the in the house today. Um, Alex is also here as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, not me. <laughs> uh, how you doing, Lady Churchill? Uh, yeah, not bad. I'm excited, and also as well, I've just realised there's a bit of a link between you and today's guest. So Thomas Harding is a best-selling author. You've probably read his outstanding Hans and Rudolph about the Jew who hunted one of the worst of the Nazis, uh, but he's here today to talk about his new book. And Lockie, it's about slavery. Uh, Thomas, hello. Hey, how are you guys? I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, the yeah, me intro too. To your book is set in Bristol in 2020 with a certain statue taking a nosedive. Lockie, you went to a uni in Bristol ages ago now. Sorry, but we are getting old. Uh, and this was a thing then, wasn't it? Yeah, well, we always knew it was a... <laughs> yeah, I'm okay, no, hang on, it's not one of our down the pub ones. I can't start swearing, but... Um... Yeah, you can, it's fine. We've all let a word slip out every now and again, oh, and I think he deserves yeah. it. We knew it was a son of a bitch back in the early 2000s, like, and it, it really was a kind of total awareness. I mean, I, I stayed at Goldney Hall was my halls, and, and Thomas Goldney was one of the ones who didn't profit massively from slavery, we think. But pretty much all the other kind of big kind of contributors to the university were like, uh, Bristol is a, is a, is a slavey city, and Colston was just, yeah, head honcho slaving bastard number one as we as we knew then so it's, it's it was nice to see his come up uh, but enough about me uh, <laughs> Thomas how, how are you doing? So, Thomas your new book is called White Debt um it's about as far removed from the second world war as you can get and this all came mm. about because of a family connection didn't it so how did it feel to discover that and what is the connection yeah, so in my last book, uh, I was writing about my mum's family. They're the ones behind the Jay Lyons catering empire. And while I was researching Legacy, it was called, I, I learned that in the 19th century, they'd had this huge tobacco business. They were the largest retail outfit in Britain. They, their campaigns, their marketing slogan was, uh, smoke more, pay less. <laughs> which you probably wouldn't get away with today. Uh, but, but almost certainly, um, the, because they're importing tobacco from North America, it would have come from plantations worked by enslaved people. And that was a total, I mean, a, a total surprise to me. Uh, I mean, for the last 10 years, as you mentioned earlier, I've been writing these books about Germany, my family, German Jewish. We left because of the Nazis in the 1930s. My grandmother was kicked out of university. Uh, she wanted to be a journalist. Uh, because she was Jewish. My great um, grandfather, um, his medical business was shut down. They had to flee Germany. Um, property was taken. Remember, my family were murdered during the Holocaust. So, you know, I, for the last few years, I've been very much seeing our family as the victims, you know, so-called victims. And so the shoe was now very much on the other foot. And I just started reading about more about Britain and slavery and, and its role in slavery. And I mean, to be totally honest, I was shocked how little I knew. I'm embarrassed to say how little I knew. You know, I, look, I knew about, I'd, I'd heard about, I knew about the triangular slave trade, you know, and 
when I was a kid, I don't know about you guys, but I was taught, if I was taught anything, it was about William Wilberforce. You know, we were the great emancipators. We abolished slavery. Good for us. Yeah. You know, and then if, and then, other than that, it was about North America. You know, I, uh, the the deep south, plantations there, gone with the wind, 12 years slave. A you know. vague triangle wasn't there. That kind of yeah. Went, oh, yeah but, we gloss over this bit where we were the enablers. Well, what, what I knew was about more about North America, not about yeah. Britain's role. And so the more I, exactly, the more I, I looked into it, the more I realized, I just knew so little. So I just started reading, 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 reading. And the more I read, the more I thought this is just, I mean, just shocking. I mean, you know, what happened in the Caribbean, the British Caribbean. And then that led me to think, okay, if I'm going to tell this story, how do I tell it through the British lens? And wouldn't it be interesting to talk about it with enslaved voices, people, the point of view from enslaved people? And that was harder because so few of the histories for understandable, well, not understandable for kind of, um, uh, for uh, given reasons, uh, were from the white person's point of view. The, you know, the, the histories, the memoirs, the letters were kept and retained in the archives by the white people. But there were a few rebellions, uprisings, and I think maybe that would capture it. And that then led me, this is a long way explaining why I wrote the book, uh, that led me to Guyana, uh, what was then called Demerara, the British colony of Demerara, and this extraordinary rebellion of 1823, almost 200 years ago, that took place in the summer of 1823. Yeah, I mean, this sounds absolutely fascinating i mean I, I was i was about to use the word bold i sometimes i use the word bold when i think hang on a minute someone's being completely stupid but actually i think this is a really kind of bold kind of job to take on i mean even before the book starts you've written about the kind of terminology that you've used and, and also sort of ways of referring to people yeah creating more diverse history is massive at the moment mm. um it's such a big issue how worried were you about taking this on because i've got to be honest i wouldn't touch it i don't i mean i mean i mean honestly i mean i mean look i'm white and uh it was a very big conversation to have and i thought about it really hard uh, you know, how, what, how, why should I, a white middle-aged man, be writing this history? You know, a man of obvious privilege, uh, went to Cambridge, you know, uh, from a class point of view, well off, you know, all those things. And my family benefited from, from slavery in some, in some ways, um, as did most families, actually, um, either more or less directly. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought that this is not just black history. This is also white history. It's all of our histories. And part of the problem, I think, you know, is that white people, myself, have not understood and learned enough about this history and our role in it and how we benefited from it. And so that's the perspective I took. You know, having said that, I was super, super aware that I'm not the first person to this history. So when I went to Guyana, for example, you know, I really went out of my way to, to talk to people um, who'd looked at this history before, uh, Guyanese historians, um, Cecilia McCalmont, um, Nigel Westmass, uh, and, and others, you know, who, who I could learn from. And, it, and one of the things I heard when I was there, and people challenged me, some people challenged me, like, why are you here? Why are you telling this story? You know, but there's a history of Europeans coming over to the Caribbean and taking this history and making money out of it and not giving any credit. So it was very important for me. I made a commitment to not only learn about this, but also give credit. So I actually talk, I, we haven't talked about the structure of the book, but the history, the book is partly the history of 1823, but it's also my journey, you know, and I intercut my journey. And so I talk about who I spoke to. I talk about what they said and what they learned. And also some of these issues that we're talking about now, you know, why am I writing this story? And if I'm going to do it, how do I write about carefully? What words do I use? Um, and it's and it was a work in progress. And I'm I'm I had a there was a it was interesting the other day we had a, a panel conversation hosted by um, the amazing Juanita Cox, Guyana Speaks. It's a diaspora group um, for Guyanese, and they, we were talking about this exact issue. And I, and it was it was reassuring to me to hear from a lot of people from Guyana and also Black British people and from North America, African Americans, who said, you know, there is a role for someone like myself to talk about this history. You know, as long as it's done with delicacy and with care um, and with, you know, a sense of accountability. But you're absolutely right. It, it's, you know, it's, it's a really good question. And I think it's the right question to ask. So let's talk about the book then. We've all heard of Demerara Sugar. 
Can you right. explain the name to us? Um, you kind of referenced it already. Yeah. It's key for the setting of the book, isn't it? And we're looking at one particular plantation. Yeah. So, so I mean, like you, I just knew about Demerara from the sugar, but it, it was the name of a colony, which is where the process was developed for refi- growing and refining the sugar. Um, today, it's called Guyana. It's on the north coast of South America, just next to Venezuela, just above Brazil. Uh, it was a British colony, one of the one that in 1820s when the rebellion took place, the uprising took place, is one of the newer of the colonies, unlike Barbados, Jamaica, which had been around for much longer. And because of that, uh, there um, there was an enormous amount. It was more, almost like the Wild West. It was like a gold rush situation. A lot of people were there to try and make a quick buck. Uh, the value of land was very high. The value of sugar was much higher there than the rest of the Caribbean because it was so profitable. Uh, the the value in in speech marks of the enslaved people who were bought and sold was higher. Now, I mean, one thing that I would that you may have known this, but one thing I was totally surprised about was that in eighteen twenties, uh, men and women and children were still being sold in the British colonies. I thought it had been banned after eighteen oh seven with the mm. end of the Atlantic slave trade. No, what had been banned was the Atlantic slave trade, not the sale between British colonies. I mean, this was a total shock to me. So, you know, there were reports of the 1820s of these, what they call the Vendu sales, of these horrific uh, purchases, again, in quotes, um, of men, women, children, uh, families being separated, humiliation, and, and, and what would become like years and years of brutal, brutal experience on the plantations with high mortality rates and sexual assault, you know, and punishments. And, and it's, you know, terrible. But this was still going on, so I was very surprised by this. But Demerara was the colony, and... Uh, along the North Atlantic coast, uh, there was a series of plantations or estates which had been had, had been cotton, but were now sugar estates. And the uprising was really started on this plantation called Success, which is an ironic name. And this was owned by a man called John Gladstone, who had never been to Demerara, but he was the largest owner of plantations. He had seven plantations. At one point, he had over 2,000 men, women and children registered to his name. And and he was the person that owned success. And, and later on, um, he would become known perhaps best because he was the father of William Gladstone, the future prime minister. But at the time, he was a very well-known politician and trader. He was one of the lead leaders of the what they called the West Indian uh, Association, the group of owners, traders who were campaigning, lobbying on behalf of the sugar plantation owners and commodity traders. And success is where the uprising took place, particularly because that was where Jack Gladstone, the enslaved 28-year-old, was based. Right. So hang on. John Gladstone, father of William Gladstone, yep. the renowned liberal, yep. um, was a significant slave owner, presumably there, there in trade. How did he manage that without ever setting foot? Uh, on the place i mean i mean it was i mean two things to say just when you say li- the renowned liberal one of the things that i think we're beginning to understand is that william gladstone wasn't such a liberal you know that there was he's a more complicated like so many of these characters it's more complicated he stood up in parliament defending his father's slaveholding interest he personally inherited a large amount of money from his father john gladstone which he lived on um he purchased property with um, so, you know, he let's just start with that. And because of that, there's been quite a lot of conversations recently about should the names of building, which have been uh, celebrating William Gladstone's life, should that be changed? So, for example, the University of Liverpool has agreed now to change the, the name of Gladstone Hall for exactly that reason. But going back to John Gladstone, I think this was quite common for absentee landlords. Now, there were some owners of plantations who did visit their estates more often than not. But but those who didn't, they had estate managers, they had agents who would manage their affairs for them. Uh, one of the peculiarities of this situation back then was that the time delay between when a letter or correspondence was sent from a colony back home. So someone like John Gladstone wouldn't hear news of what was going on for between four and six weeks, because that's how long it took for the letters to get back on packet ships. And then it would take another four or six weeks to return. So you know, three months, four months could easily pass in the in the course of this kind of correspondence. So, so there was quite a lot of trust um, had to be given to the local managers. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to do anything. 
And uh, typically what happened was they were on the more conservative side. So they were very pro-slavery, obviously, but also they were anti-missionary. They were pro-punishment. And they were very supportive of the local authorities, the British militia and the British governor, using any means necessary to suppress any sense of rebellion. You would have to be, wouldn't you? Because you're not there. So you're just going to put all your faith in somebody else taking care of your shit, basically. Well, I mean, I mean, I don't think you'd have to be reliant on such a conservative approach. And there were some people who tried a more open minded approach. But, you know, I was I was at Monticello the other day in Virginia. I was lucky enough to visit Monticello, which is the home of, of Thomas Jefferson, the guy who wrote um, uh, all men, uh, uh, all men should be equal in the yeah. Declaration of Independence. And I mean, he was also the owner of over 600 people, uh, 600 men and women, enslaved people. And he wrote some awful things. But one of the things that somebody in my group asked the tour guide was, um, well, you know, what, surely Thomas Jefferson was one of the good ones. <laughs> and, yeah. and the woman said, that, I mean, that's a total oxymoron. You can't be a good slave owner. You know, it's, it's just, you know, that doesn't exist. You know, so, so the answer, to answer your question, I think, you know, there were logistical barriers and there were some, some definite uh, time delays and they would have had to have agreements ahead of time in terms of expenses, in terms of protocols. But for the most part, there was a, 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 um, a culture which was shared by almost all the slave owners, slaveholders, which was one of, of strict control terrible punishment uh viewing people um of african descent as being inferior i mean the racism was rife um at the same time enormous amount of hypocrisy and and uh when it came to money uh greed you know at the very center of john gladstone's life mission was to make money and anything that was in the uh, uh an aid of making money was basically that that's what would tilt his decision making uh so i mean Again, we're jumping around here, but after slavery was abolished by the British Parliament officially, John Gladstone was the guy who a few years later was like, okay, I've got a problem now because I don't have this free labor. What am I going to do with these sugar plantations? Oh, I know I'm going to replace them with people from India come over. And so he was one who created this whole system of indentorship. You saw a whole new form of exploitation because, as I said, his whole MO was about making money. And, you know, he just came up with a new way of doing that at the expense of other people. So what you've done is based this on four people, haven't you? Yeah. Four individuals. And one of those is John Gladstone, the absentee yeah. landowner. Yeah. Um, but then you've already mentioned him, Jack Gladstone. How much of a challenge is it bringing back to life an enslaved person who had so little a voice of their own, even when they were alive? Yeah, I mean, Jack Gladstone is a totally fascinating character. And... I mean, the reason why I chose this story was because we do have some records and it's very rare to have sources like this. So what we have is not only do we have memoirs and letters and reports, newspaper reports and commentaries from the time describing Jack Gladstone. For example, there's a wanted notice describing how he looks. Um, there's letters from the governor about Jack Gladstone. There's there's. Um, there's uh, a journal kept by the white missionary John Smith we'll talk about in a second, talk about his encounters with Jack Gladstone. But the most important thing was after the uprising was, was stopped, was cancelled, was, uh, was oppressed uh, by the British militia, there was a series of, of, of court proceedings, court martials, uh, where more than 50 uh, enslaved abolitionists, um, the people who took part in the uprising, were prosecuted and basically all, almost all were found guilty. And one of those was Jack Gladstone. And so we hear his testimony about not only his situation, but also how, how the uprising unfolded and, and who was, took part. So I was able to actually quote him. So he uses reported speech. And that's something which is, I mean, I, I'm only interested in writing historical nonfiction. So if I'm any quotation I'm using, I have to have a source for. So I, I had an extraordinary opportunity here of actually being able to quote, you know, Jack Gladstone and the other enslaved people who, uh, who took part in that trial. Now, look, some of the words, I mean, all the words were not written by them. So you have to take a little bit of a pinch of salt because there would have been a clerk or a scribe who would have written down their words. But I think they are, and other historians would say, um, fairly reliable. And because of that, I'm able to, as you say, tell it from Jack's point of view. And, and I wouldn't have done this without that. One of the questions I had uh, in a similar uh, vein is, you know, how do you represent from a visual point of view the uprising? 
from the other histories, there are very clearly uh, pictures of some of the key white people involved in the uprising. You've got the picture of the governor. You've got numerous pictures of John Gladstone in the portrait galleries, National Portrait Galleries in London, Edinburgh. John Smith, there's a portrait of him, the missionary. There's other characters like Cheverly, there's portraits of him, but there's nothing basically of the enslaved people. So, you know, do you, do you just have the white people, which is what historians have normally done? Well, for me, the visual side is really important. I'm quite a visual person. So I relate to the images. And without that, I find it quite difficult. And if it was just the white people, I think that biases how I feel. The other option would be to have none, no pictures. Well, there, I, I can see the argument for that. It's a level playing field. The third option is to commission new artwork. And when I first started thinking about that, I was thinking, well, who am I to do that? And how would you do it? And based on what materials? But I started looking into it and other people have done this for, for um, other black abolitionists from the States, for example, Nat Turner and, and, and others. I mean, Frederick Douglass, the, the extraordinary abolitionist from the States, he's one of the most photographed people of the 19th century. Um, so there are ways of doing it. And there is a little bit of physical information about Jack um, in the historical record. So I went to this, the person I mentioned earlier, Juanita Cox, who runs this diaspora organization. We talked about this and she was quite keen about it. There's no representation of Jack Bloodstone in the, in the visual memory of Guyana. She, she then put out a call for Guyanese artists to do the pictures. And extraordinarily lucky, Errol Brewster, who's this renowned Guyanese artist, took up the challenge. And a few weeks later, the, I, the image of Jack Gladstone appeared in my e in email box. And I'll tell you, I, I, it did change my, my sensation, my view, my, my understanding of him, this visual idea. And so I thought that was really interesting. And then I, I was looking at all the pictures and I, it became very obvious that we only had men. That's all we had. So again, what do we do about that? So we then put out another call and there were some women who were portrayed, both the wife of the white missionary, John Smith, Jane is her name, as well as some of the black abolitionists. So, you know, this is part of the, I think, the, the, the effort now, the challenge of writing about these histories. But to do nothing, I think, would be a mistake, you know. So, but it, you're absolutely right. There are some difficulties involved with this. Should we play a game with Lockie? Because we show Lockie the imagining of Jack Glanton and see what his reaction is. Yeah, yeah. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, I just it, it seems like quite gaunt and like a, a, a guy who's been through a lot. And I, I, I presume that's the that's the, the the main aim with it. But I think, yeah, I think it's really important because without that, you'd really you'd just be looking at words on a page and you wouldn't be able to then conjure that image up. And I think a lot of people do think as you do, you know, quite visually and uh, mm. without that image, it, it, it lacks a little something. So I think that's a great idea to, 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 to rumble through. I mean, the other thing of course is for the white people, almost certainly the artists never met those subjects any either. Mm. So, I mean, this is not a new idea of imagining based on some kind of physical descriptions or understandings. You know, we see all these romantic pictures of these historical figures, right? So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you thought that. And um, I mean, Jesus is a case in point, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. He would have been a brown man. Yeah. Moses. I mean, there's all these, these, these you know, William the Conqueror, you know, all these things, you know, uh, you know, the Bayo Tapestry people, you know, did, did, were they really familiar with the figures who were uh, who portrayed? I mean, I, I doubt it. All right, let's let's talk about um, another of the individuals then, one that you mentioned already, um, John Smith. Yeah. What's his role in this? So John Smith is a really intriguing character. He was this young white missionary who'd never left Britain before. Uh, and with the London Missionary Society, he said, I want to do public service. They sent him out to Demerara. And uh, he was part of the nonconformist, you know, maybe, you know, we might call them I don't know, Baptists or evangelical today. And uh, they had a tradition of being anti-slavery, but he was told by his superiors, you must not upset the apple cart. Do not be political. Your job is to actually support the system. They put this in writing to him. And despite that, he, he and his wife, Jane, had a very strong reaction when they 
encountered slavery. They were disgusted by it. And their mission, and they were there from 1817 uh, all the way through the uprising in 1823, was to create this mission which supported the enslaved people, as they would call it in religious instruction. And that included teaching them how to read and write which was something that the white colonists were very unhappy about. And there was a lot of pushback. Uh, the church was shut down a few times. Uh, the governor were, um, was very unhappy about it. There was lots of newspaper articles saying that John Smith was, you know, not against the interests of the colonists and so on. And then at the time of the uprising, uh, John, John Smith was uh, caught up in it. And afterwards, he was accused of fermenting the uprising. And he he was one of the few white people who was um, prosecuted, charged, and um, and then he had to go to part, take part in the court martial, and he was found guilty, and sentenced to death, and his his case became a cause celeb in Britain. And I think one of the reasons it's so interesting is by 1823 the anti-slavery movement was really at a low ebb. I talked earlier about 1807 about the. Atlantic slave trade. And there's been this huge campaign around there to bring about the end of the Atlantic slave trade. But after that, it really diminished. You know, the conversation was much more technical about how to end slavery um, financially and should we compensate the slave owners? And if so, how much? And it became this technical conversation. And, and the anti-slavery movement really, you know, was, a, a, was, was not very, very um, unenergized. And then as news came over to Britain after the uprising in Demerara, as the news of the conditions and the atrocities of Demerara, of how the Br British militia had brutally suppressed the uprising, and perhaps most of all, there was this guy called John Smith who quickly became viewed as a martyr this white guy, and people became very upset about it. And he actually ended up dying in prison uh, before he found out that the king had commuted his sentence and he would have, if he had survived, he would have been kicked out of the country, but he died with the sentence over him of sentence to death. So he became this martyr. And, and that really, that and the conditions of slavery, plus the inspiration of the of the enslaved abolitionists because of their uh, their tactics, their nonviolent tactics, really energized, re-energized the anti-slavery movement. So that 10 years later, by 1833, it reached a crescendo with petitions and organized, organized meetings, lobbying of members of parliament, and the, uh, the act which uh, stopped slavery, abolished slavery across the empire was finally passed. So in August 1834, emancipation was declared. Now look, a lot of people would argue that slavery wasn't ended then. There was this new form called um, the apprenticeship scheme, which lasted for six to eight years. And um, even after that, I talked about the, the exploitation of these other systems, but it was definitely a huge step forward, the, uh, the abolition of slavery in 1834. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I think so brilliantly all four of these guys are called John or a derivative of John. So the last one that we need to discuss is John Cheveley. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was definitely a challenge. We had yes. four Johns, uh, well, three Johns and a Jack. And so, so just from a storytelling point of view, what to do with that? Well, my decision was to use everybody's last names except for Jack Gladstone. Hopefully that, that means it's not too confusing. Uh, for the reader what did you think do you think it was easy to follow I just, all the characters merciful that you did not do the mantel thing that just got on my nerves in the end in wolf hall where she would go he 
comma, yeah. Cromwell. Yeah, all right. right. Okay. I yeah, we've got that. Just we got that. about the main guy. Yeah, right. that would have really got on my nerves. This I thought worked. I didn't struggle at all. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so John Cheveley is, is, for me, the most interesting character. He's almost like the bridge character because he arrives, this white guy, poor white guy looking for work. His family farm has you know, been lost. He's been sent away by his parents to make money. He arrives in Demerara, knowing nobody, um, ends up being a clerk in a general store, very naive, missing home, emotionally, I think, quite immature. And then he gets um, enlisted for the militia because of the uprising, because of the, um, uh, the, the um, martial law had been declared by the governor. And so he then starts, you know, marching up the coast with the other um, you know, un, un, unprofessional amateur soldiers, um, never held a rifle before, never seen action before. And he then um, comes face to face with the enslaved abolitionists, takes part in a, um, a brutal bloodbath where over 200 uh, enslaved people were, were killed by the British militia. You know, they had the training and the rifles and so on. And then and this was totally shocking to me, the British militia went around for the next few days what they, you know, we might call mopping up operations euphemistically, but going around, um, uh, gathering enslaved men and women without trial and lining them up and shooting them. I mean, it's really shocking. Over 200 people were killed that way. And he was really, this is a transformational experience for him. Up till then, I think he'd been quite supportive of the colonists. He had kind of bought the line that the um, the missionaries were troublemakers. He, you know, yes, he was, you know, against slavery, but he kind of was take, took part in the system. But after this experience, he totally had a 180 degree turn. So we see his transformation. He goes back to Britain, tells people about it, comes back to Demerara. He himself is persecuted and ends up leaving the colony a broken man. Uh, so I think he's a really interesting person, John Cheveley. Okay, now, having set the scene, the catalyst for the whole story is this is this uprising at the success uh, plantation. Yeah. So, I mean, let's, how does that come about? What 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 exactly happened? So, the background to the story is that because of um, general kind of uh, mis you know dissatisfaction with slavery in general back in Britain, even though the campaign was a low ebb, the politicians were still some politicians, William Wilberforce and his colleagues to do something about slavery. And so word came from London to all the governors of all the colonies, not to abolish slavery, but just they called it amelioration to ameliorate the conditions. And for that, for them, what that meant was the ending of the whip it, whipping of enslaved women. It meant uh, enslaved men and women should be able to attend church on Sundays, you know, these kind of things. So the governor of, of Demerara receives this letter from the, for, the, the head of the colonies department in London. Uh, and John Murray is the governor's name. And rather than having a discussion at the local parliament called the Court of Policy, um, he delays the conversation and he delays it again. And then he delays it again because he knows the colonists will be very upset by this because they'll see this as the thin edge of a web. They, they, they think this is going to be inevitable, inevitably lead to the end of slavery, which in his view, John Murray's view, and he was also the owner of plantations where enslaved people uh, were registered. Uh, so total conflict of interest. His view was, you know, we have to stop that at all costs. So what happens, though, is despite his efforts to kind of kick the can down the road, members of his staff learned about it, including this one a uh, free black guy called Daniel, who would sometimes look at the governor's papers. And then he passed word on to Jack Gladstone and the other enslaved people. That wasn't the only source. There was other sources as well. And then Jack then started um, talking to uh, other enslaved men and women saying, we need to do something about this. The governor's not implementing these instructions from London. And that was the, that was the kind of the trigger. You know, there had already been a number of you know, terrible, you know, atrocities that had happened on, on the um, various plantations. So there was more than enough motive, but the actual triggering event was this letter from London. And over the next few weeks, Jack and, and his colleagues started talking about how do we organize the, the uprising? You know, what were the best tactics? When should we do it? Uh, sh should we um, use weapons or not use weapons? Their uh, final decision was to to follow the nonviolence as much as possible, but to seize the weapons of the slaveholders to kind of reduce their their power and to also organize it across the um across the colony so that it'd be more difficult for the the militia to suppress it if it's happening across the colony in various different places so they this was not like some spontaneous response this was a really organized well considered uh, tactical 
uprising uh, with John, with Jack Gladstone at, at its center. And it all kicks off in August 1823 on the success plantation and then spreads very quickly to more than 30 estates across the colony. It's well, that sounds like a, a really kind of mature, I guess, kind of mm. insurrection and a, and a kind of well thought through one, one that carries quite a lot of risk uh, too. I mean, to to just take weapons away. <laughs> Presumably the weapon holders are going to object. Uh, well, what this, they did, so. what I mean, again, tactics, their ideas is, is they put this, the plantation manager and estate hole and um, overseers into the stocks or they, would, or they would kind of lock them in their houses, you know, so that they, 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 and then they would take the, the weapons. And uh, I think one of the reasons why it was so well considered was because Jack, very unusually, was able to travel to Georgetown, the capital. Um, Jack was the head cooper, so he made these huge barrels called hogsheads, these huge wooden barrels which carried the sugar. And he would deliver these to Georgetown um, so that sugar could be exported. And in his travels, he met people at the docks. He met uh, the sailors. He would um, be able to read the newspapers from around uh, the Caribbean as well as from North America and Britain. And so he knew about these other rebellions which had taken place across the Caribbean. The Haiti Revolution hadn't been that much earlier there was other uprising in in um, barbados and he knew that one of the consequences were these horrible retaliations repressions oppressions by the british militia and others so he wanted to avoid that uh, uh and and that's you know so he was he was he was very well informed as were so many of the people i mean the idea of them of the enslaved people being this kind of passive uh, people with no agency is totally wrong from all the historical evidence it's very clear that they were very much agents of their life uh, and one of the things i think which is really interesting is historically it's it's always been the humanitarians in britain who've been cr- given credit isn't it william wilberforce yeah. uh, buxton and, and the rest and uh you know i think credit has also got to be given to the enslaved abolitionists you know i call them enslaved abolitionists because obviously they were enslaved but they were also very committed to abolishing slavery. And uh, at one point, this had been suggested to me by somebody. And at one point I was thinking, okay, that's kind of, uh, kind of a slightly confusing, but then I had this mind experiment. If you, if you use the sentence, something like, you know, the British militia shot 200 rebels versus the British militia shot 200 enslaved abolitionists. I mean, for me, that has a very different feeling because of my biases, because of my education. And I think that's important to challenge people to, to think about where they're coming from think about what they're bringing to the story, you know, because whenever we're reading stories, watching movies or whatever, reading books, we always bring ourselves, our own experiences, our own values, don't we, to, to the experience. Yeah. The big one is Indian mutiny being right. rephrased to Indian rebellion now. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You fully investigated the trial as well, but I want people to go and buy this book. So we're mm. not going to tell them all the juicy stuff that happens in the trial and all of the, the testimony that comes out. But one thing I did want to touch on is when we say the word trial again, it's all about perceptions. This is probably completely unlike what we'd imagine when we say the word trial procedurally, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's it's very strange to set, set up. I mean, first of all, I mean, just historically, Demerara, the colony, had Dutch law because before the Brits took over in 1804, the colony had gone backwards and forwards between the Netherlands and, and Britain. And the, the law of the colony was Dutch. The currency was the Gilder, the Dutch Gilder. And yet the governor set up this, this trial based on a court-martial. Uh, so someone like John Smith, who's obviously not a combatant, didn't take part in the in the uprising in any meaningful way. He was trialed, tri- he was tried according to court martial. More than that, uh, the court martial members, what we might call a jury, were all men who had taken part in the suppression of the uprising. They were all part of the British militia. Uh, the president of the court martial, I mean, this is really mind-boggling. The president was also the guy who was in charge of the Vendue in the colony. He was in charge of the auction of enslaved people. I mean, hardly impartial, you know, and not to mention all the people who are in the audience, most of whom were either associated with slavery or with the plantation system, including the journalists, of course, to all very, all their advertising and subscriptions basically came from uh, people involved in somehow in the, in the slave slavery system, you know, whether it's, you know, advertising the, lo- the recent ship which has come in or the commodities available for sale or, or the, even in the Vendue. So it was very biased. And this was actually brought up later on. There was a two-day uh, 
debate in the House of Parliament in, in London about the Demerara uprising and the uh, conviction of John Smith. And these kind of legal arguments were some of those deployed by those who thought that a pardon should be given to those who took part in the uprising. All right. Writing this book, it took you to Guyana, didn't it? And, and the result is an examination of not only your family, but also Britain's role in the slave trade. I guess it must have been pretty emotional at, at times. Um, but what do, you, what do you think you've taken away from it? Yeah, so, I mean, let me just explain. So the, the reason I got into this, you know, one of my primary triggers was because I, I learned that my family you know, was involved with the tobacco business, imported tobacco from North America and from plantations almost certainly worked by enslaved people. But I didn't want to investigate the slavery of North America because that was something I felt I was more familiar with growing up. I really want to understand Britain's role in slavery. So then I kind of went away from my family uh, to understand, uh, you know, a colony and how a slave colony worked. That's what took me to Demerara. Today now, Guyana, and, and I was very lucky to be able to go there uh, a, a year or so ago. And it was an extraordinary trip because, you know, being able to walk the land, to be able to taste the food, smell the air, really, it, for me, it changes, you know, a story so I can understand it. But more, much more than that was meeting the people, you know, the historians who've worked on the subject, going to the archives in Georgetown. That's where I found a lot of these letters from the Court of Policy and the original newspaper articles. There was adverts in the newspapers for what they called runaway slaves, you know, really shocking descriptions of the slave auctions um, and the kind of terrible way they would describe other human beings, uh, but also talking to people about what is the legacy of slavery today? What does it mean? Is there anything that it means? To, and, and, and again and again, the Guyanese people I spoke to said, absolutely. The legacy of slavery was real. It was very much felt in Guyana from the health um, outcomes to educational levels, to the debt of the country, uh, to economic and, and social opportunity and racism within the colony, very bad racism in the colony. And then when I came back to Britain, I heard very many similar things from people, uh, black British people with Caribbean heritage. They said that, you know, that, that yes, this slavery was abolished over 200 years ago, but uh, yes, slavery was abolished 200 years ago, but you can see the links. You can see the impact on society today, where, again, in terms of racism, in terms of differences and opportunities um, and outcomes. And so that really made me think about, you know, my family and our role and tried to investigate that further. And I started having conversations with members of my family. I, you know, I sent them a mass email and said, you know, this is all new to me. You, some of you may have heard about this or have ideas about it you know would you be interested in finding out more and i had an overwhelming response of interest this was after the murder of george floyd and the black lives matter protest so i think there was already a, a raised consciousness and uh, we had a series of conversations now there was a small handful of members of my family who were very resistant you know how dare you do this you're going to tarnish the reputation of the family uh, this is all so many years ago. We should work on issues, look at issues which are present today, climate change, inequality, injustice, domestic violence, and so on. Uh, uh, some of them would say things like, you know, well, everyone did it, so why pick on us? You know, these kind of arguments. And But the vast majority of, of members of my family were committed to not only educate themselves, acknowledge our family's role, but also understand the wider role of British society. Because one of the things I heard in Guyana, but also in Britain is, this is not just about people with direct links to slavery. It's really everyone who has somehow benefited from the wealth that came over, the enormous wealth that came over from slavery. And that's pretty much white people. At the very least, it's white people. You know, even if you, your family has just arrived recently, even if there are real challenges for white working class people in this country um, and, and many other challenges, there's still this advantage that is inherited from those times. And that's something which is really interesting to me. And the more I thought about it, the more it became obvious to me that a profound harm had taken place. Over 3 million Africans were kidnapped and transported to, you know, to the Americas. A third of them died in the Middle Passage. You know, the terrible conditions, the, the slave auctions, the brutality, the high mortality rates and so on. So the question is, you know, who's responsible? Someone's got to be responsible for that. And for me, you know, at first, I, I was uncomfortable saying it was white people. I mean, I thought I'm the kind of person who on a census form does, didn't used to, you know, check, I don't know about you guys, but didn't used to check white. You know, it's, it's none of their business, the government's business and so on. Yeah. But the more I looked into this, the more I was like, actually, you know, this it is important, you know, and 
you know, in a in a perfect society, ethnic ethnicity, race wouldn't matter. But it is look, it's not a biological truth, but it is a cultural reality, and so it has to be recognised. I believe, and the vast majority of those involved with the transport of enslaved Africans were white. The vast majority of people owning the plantations, working on the plantations as managers, supervisors were white. Those involved with you know, transporting the common commodities back to Britain, owning those ships and the firms, the banks, the insurance companies, the dock workers, and those benefiting on the other side in Britain were white. Now, look, there were a few, a small few, black and mixed race people involved in the Atlantic slave trade, in the commodities. Yes, there were some Africans involved with the kidnap of Africans, and and got the presidents of Ghana and Benin have apologised. But that shouldn't minimise or set aside the response, in my view, the responsibility of, of white people. And so that's something that I've really been thinking about a lot. And, you know, it, it makes it's deeply uncomfortable and history is complicated. And, you know, I think the conversation should be as inclusive as possible. I'm not trying to upset anybody, but, but you know, with my experience, you know, my of, of my years in Germany, I think, you know, one of the things I've learned from the Germans, and I think it's important not to equate, you know, what happened to Jews in the Holocaust, Mm. and um, Af uh, the Africans in, in slavery, from British slavery. However, I think there's some lessons learned. And one of the things I learned from Germany is it's absolutely critical to acknowledge the atrocities of history. And in this case, we'll talk about Britain's role in slavery. And shockingly, Britain has never formally apologized. You know, no prime minister has formally apologized. No member of the royal family has formally apologized. Yes, there's been vague mentions of regret and, and so forth. Prince Charles was in the Caribbean recently talking about how terrible it was. The royal family was at the very core of slavery. I mean, they were the ones who charted it, financed it, benefited. There needs to be an apology at the very least. And then my friends in Guyana would say, an apology is important, but it's not enough. There needs to be more than that. There needs to be discussions about reparations, whether that's economic reparations or cultural reparations, you know, that can take many different forms, but it needs to be more than an apology. Absolutely. On that note, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. I just like a fangirl moment here. Loved the last book. Um, thank you. In awe of the way you jump around history and sound thank like you. you know what you're talking about. The second Lockie and I strolled slightly away from World War One, we feel like massive imposters. Can I ask, what, what did you think about White? Can I ask, what, did you, what was your experience of reading White Dead? I don't like books that are part personal journey but I really like this I was I look at them and I think oh it's not about you but I read this and it's what makes it work mm. it is what thank makes you. it work thank you because I think otherwise you're virtue signal aren't you here I've produced a book about slavery for I'm a historian and I know it was bad <laughs> but this isn't this is something else this is mm. uh, you trying to come to terms with not only as a Brit, your role in it, but also on a personal level as well, because of this family connection. And I, I just don't, it would not have been the right book without it, which is saying something, because I'm such a cynic with this stuff. And I already know Lockie, Lockie's already giving me the eye that says, put it in the post, put it in the post. I want it, I want it, I want it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll confess I've done the podcast from a position of ignorance, because I've, I've not read the book yet, but I'm absolutely resolved to pick it up. And I'm here smiling, because there's so much that we've talked about here that... I want to talk about on my London tours or, you know, just, just generally, I mean, mm. things like um, uh, tours in the East end with, with, there's the big statue of Gladstone there with the red hands that, you know, kind of reflects on his yeah. liberalism and, and the treatment of, of, of people at the Brighton Maze match factory. And that's, that's more of a women's history thing potentially, but also a kind of a tie to this story and to this uh, family as well. Um, but also just the perspective and the idea that oh, everyone was doing it at the time. Well, you've highlighted John Smith, um, who really kind of puts the, puts the lie into that uh, statements and, and, you know, was reflective of, of the way that the empire treating people in that yeah. shambolic uh, manner it ties into I mean I, I've been quite keen on South African history and mm. stuff like that but there are links there as well but both with kind of abolition and problems of abolition but also uh, the treatment of Indian uh, yep. workers that were brought in to funnily enough grow sugar in the tile uh, right. as well so and all these kind of elements tying together just make this such a fascinating fascinating subject and topic and it sounds like you've approached it in absolutely the right way so I'm Thank dead, you. dead keen so, it's, yeah. it's so interesting. It's so interesting. You mentioned just two things. One is John Smith. You know, he comes, he's been written about as this great martyr, which, you know, I think he does come across very honorably. And if you read his journal, which is one of the amazing sources for this, he wrote over 60,000 words during his time of Demerara. It's an amazing historical source. 
But then if you read it carefully, he's also racist. I mean, he, the way he talks about the enslaved people, the, the black people, the plantations is really, to me, awful, terrible. And so the, it becomes complicated, right? He, you can be both anti-slavery, but also a racist. I think that's really interesting. And then you mentioned the East End. My family were from the East End. They arrived from Europe. They were in the East End. That's where they set up their tobacco business. So yes, history looks at them quite badly in terms of how they benefited from slavery and the choices they made. But on the other hand, how extraordinary they, their, their, their efforts in the East End, they created this remarkable catering business called Jay Land, one of the first places for women to eat out in public. You know, it's incredibly uh, democratic and, and, and much beloved in terms of what happened during the Blitz and the Blitz spirit. And they, they were single-handedly responsible for producing over a seventh of the bombs that were dropped by Britain on Germany during the Second World War. You know, they played an enormous effort in that sense. You know, the, the head of the family, this guy called Monty Gluckstein, was like the Steve Jobs of, of, of the family, this extraordinary entrepreneur whose his motto was, we try to understand what people want before they know they want it. You know, and so they did an enormous amount of good things and their public spirit and it was well remarked. So I think one of the things I take away from this is, is how complicated history is. And, you know, you just need a little time to understand it and, and look into it. And, and it's, it's so fascinating. Thomas, your family sounds absolutely amazing. Are you related <laughs> to Nigella Lawson or is she? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, so Nig- she's lions. Yeah, yeah. She's lions. Yeah. Yeah. She's, so she's a, she said some very nice things about my book Legacy. So, yeah, we're related with cousins. Ah, oh, okay. I'm not going to say that in front of any of the men on History Hat because they'll just be like, get her on, get her on for a history of anything, anything. <laughs> Thank you so much, Thomas. The well, book thank you, guys. is on the History Hack Bookshop. If Zach was here, Zach would say, do not go to Amazon because Jeff Bezos will just spend it on rocket fuel. Go to bookshop.org because then not only does Thomas get his... And card, what is the name of the book again? The book is called White Debt, The Demerara Uprising and Britain's Legacy of Slavery. Uh, Look at me plugging my book. Terrible, yeah. shameless. <laughs> no, go for it. It's what you're here for. So. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll be in our bookshop, which means that History Hat gets a cut, Thomas gets a cut, and Amazon doesn't get any cut. And independent bookstores are supported as well. So we do uh, implore you to buy it from there, but do buy it. And Lockie, I promise you it's going in the post today. Thank you. Thanks, guys. It's been a real pleasure. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.